are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. If you have a copy of God's Word or a device of some kind, turn to Hebrews chapter 7. Chapter 7, we're going to focus most of our time on 7 today. All right, see how well you guys do with this. First service, either embarrassed or they just don't know anything. Uh, They don't read. I think everyone likes to watch movies. All right, very famous book. And a very famous line in this book, five words. Ready? I open at the close. That's my people over there. <laughs> I open at the close. You know, if you know what book that is, raise your hand. I see those hands. Baptists, I see those hands. All right. Okay. If you know it and you're embarrassed that you know it, raise your hand. Okay. All right. Some of you know it, you just don't read very well or you watch movies. I open at the close is a famous little line in the last book by J.K. Rowling, The Deathly Hallows, okay, Harry Potter, all right? Some of you just watch movies. That's why you have to read books. Um, but here, here's why it's significant. So the three protagonists, Ron, Hermione, and obviously Harry, they've been given three items by Dumbledore, who's dead. If you haven't read the book, I'm spoiling the whole thing for you, but it's been 20 years, okay? So, but, so they've been given a mission, and they have these three items that they have no clue what they mean. They're like, why do I have this? Why you give me this book, and you give me this little thing, and you give me... And they don't know. And Harry's like, I don't know what I open at the close means. And the whole book, he's, like, he's trying to figure it out. Until the end of the book, at the end of the book, finally, it makes sense. He's like, oh, I get it. Right? I, I understand now if I could see, you know, if in the beginning, 900 pages ago, I would have gotten it. Right? But now at the end, I get what it means. And, and that idea of just like kind of mystery and what does this mean, that's, that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to be introduced again to a guy. He's a mystery guy. His name is Melchizedek. We're going to call him Mel for short. It'll make my sermon like five minutes shorter if I do, okay? So Mel is this guy who's introduced way back in the beginning of the Bible, Right, Genesis 14. And he's introduced, and then it's like he's gone. And you don't hear, you're like, wait, what was that? It's like crazy. And then he's introduced real briefly again, right in the middle of the Bible in the Psalms. His name is just kind of dropped, boop. And then he's gone again. You're like, what in the world? And another thousand years pass, and the writer to Hebrews in chapter five is like, okay, let's talk about Mel. But then he says, no, I can't talk about Mel because y'all are so thick. So we'll just wait and let's talk about how thick you are. And so he forgets Mel again. And then finally today in chapter six and seven, he's going to say, okay, let's talk about Mel. And, and, and when we talk about Mel, my, my hope is this. It's just been the mystery and drop here and drop there, but kind of nothing that you would like at the end of the book say, I open to the close. Oh, now I get it. Now I see what God was doing there the whole time, even though I didn't understand it in the middle of it. Now, looking back, I get it. I opened the clothes. All right, I get it. And so my goal for us today is this. Let's just kind of talk about Mel. Who's Mel? And what's his significance? And why do we even need to know anything about him? Why does the writer of Hebrews think it's important enough to put it in in the scripture several times? That's what we're going to talk about. And, And real easy, we're going to follow this kind of real easy structure of this week. We're going to, we're going to look first at Mel's story. Secondly, we're going to look at Mel's superiority. And to finish the trifecta of S's for all the Baptists in the house, we're going to look at Mel's significance. You are welcome, Baptists, right? Three S's. And after we cover those three S's, I want to kind of say, okay, what does this matter then? What's the point? Why do we need to hear about this? What is the application, hopefully, for us in Mel's story? 
All right, so let's jump into his story first. Uh, chapter 7, verses 1 and 2, uh, kind of going to allude to it, and I'll kind of unpack it for you. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness. And he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. So in verses one and two, he alludes to the very, very, very first time that old Mel comes into the story, 2,000 years before this, 4,000 years ago for our, from us, right? In Genesis chapter 14, during the days of Abraham, which Abraham lived in about 2,000 BC. So we're talking 4,000 years ago, this guy named Melchizedek. Now, let's just talk about his name real quick. Uh, in Hebrew, Melech means king. And the way the Hebrew language works, they don't have pronouns like the word my, I. Those are just tacked on to the end of the noun. So the, 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 the noun Melchi means my king, right? So his name means my king. And then the, the second half of his name, Zedek, means righteousness. So his name means my king is righteousness. That's what his name means. And we find out that he is the king of Salem. That's not you know, the witch, witch's trial in America. This is the city that was, was formerly known Salem became Jerusalem, right? Before, this is a thousand years before David was even, you know, around, it was called Salem. So he is a king whose name means my name is, my king is righteous, this, and he is the king of what becomes Jerusalem. And he is a priest of the most high God in the Hebrew, the El Elyon in Genesis 14. He, he is the one true, this is before Exodus 3 where the name Yahweh comes into play. He is the one true God, which is fascinating. This is a fascinating piece of this guy because at this point in human history, 2000 BC, how much of the Old Testament had been written at this point? Do you know? Zero. Zippo. Nil. There's no Bible. Moses is still 500 years away. So how is this dude, the king, a priest of the Most High God? I have no idea. But I think it's fascinating that there's no Bible, there's no televangelist, but here's a guy who is the priest. What does a priest even do before there's the Bible? I don't even know. But he is the priest of the one true God, which means for him and Abraham are, are, are kindred spirits. They're brothers, right? Because Abraham is a follower of the one true God, and he is a priest of the one true God. And so what happens, he meets Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. What's he talking about there? You can read about it in Genesis 14. So what happens in that, in that day, you have all these like, little city-states. This guy's the king of this. This guy's the king of this. And these group over here, this group of kings, they, they ganged up against this group of kings. And they came and fought this group of kings. And this group won. And so they took all their stuff, the cows and their, their women is what they would do, their kids as slaves. And they take all their stuff and they go away. And, and one of Abraham's family members gets caught up in that deal. His name was Lot. He's his nephew. And he's a punk. Lot is a punk, but he's family. So you do for family, right? And so Abraham says, I gotta go, do, I gotta go save Lot. So he gets 318 of his men and they go and they chase those kings down and God gives them victory. And they not only beat those kings, they take all the stuff back and they rescue all the people back. And so they head back to the land and when they come back to the land, two kings come out to meet Abraham. Number one, Melchizedek, the king of Salem. Number two, the king of Sodom. And these kings both come out. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, says to him, he blesses him and says, blessed be Abram. By 
El Elyon, God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be El Elyon, God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And as a response, Abraham gives Melchizedek one-tenth of the spoils, all these cows and all this stuff. He gives him a, he is the first person in all the Bible to tithe. This is where the first tithe of the Bible comes. Abraham tithes all the stuff from all the, from all the loot to Melchizedek. Now, the king of Sodom comes up to him. You can read it in, in Genesis 14, and it says, Abraham, you can keep all the stuff. We don't want the stuff. We just want our people back. And Abraham says, no, I don't want your stuff or your people because I don't want anyone to say that the king of Sodom blessed me. And so he gives him all the stuff. He doesn't tithe. He just gives him all his stuff back. And there's another sermon in there for another day because Sodom is wicked, right? So we know this. But for this purpose, we're talking only Melchizedek. So that's, that's where he shows up first time. And then the writer of Hebrews back in verse three says that he, Melchizedek, is without father or mother or genealogy having neither beginning of days nor end of life. The idea there is not that he's like an angel or that this is, some people say, oh, this is a pre-incarnate Jesus. That's not the idea, all right? The idea is we don't know anything about him. He just shows up and poof, he's gone. He doesn't mention his mama and his daddy. He doesn't mention how long he lives. He doesn't mention anything. And there is a reason why. If you read through the book of Genesis, right, Moses is constantly telling you about who's your daddy and how long they live, right? Adam was this. He had this, da, 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 this many kids, this many kids, lived for 900 and this many years, and then he died. Noah was this. He had this many kids, da, 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 and then he died. You know, this guy was this. this and that's all the book of Genesis, all these people. This guy had this many kids. He gets married. He lives for this many years, and he dies. Except for Melchizedek, he just says, here he is, and poof, he's gone. And it's not that he lives forever, but they want, he, he, there's something unique about him, the way he is presenting him that you don't know. You don't know who his mom is. You don't know who his dad is. Why? Because he resembles the son of God and he continues forever. So because you don't know when he dies, his priesthood continues forever. Because you don't know who his mom and his dad are, he resembles the son of God who didn't have, yeah, Jesus had an earthly parent, but he really didn't have, that, that's just for the incarnation. Jesus has always been. He always existed. Eternity passed. There was a second person of the Trinity. And so this one resembles this one. And that's, that is the idea of, of verse three. So that's his first part of his story. Next time he shows up, that's 2000 BC, is a thousand years later when King David, in penning the 110th Psalm, says this. This is the Psalm that says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. This is God the Father talking to the Messiah, God the Son. And he says this, the Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You, speaking to Messiah, are a priest forever after the order of what? Melchizedek. And you're like, wait, Melchizedek, wait, where does that come from? Oh, yeah, Genesis 14. And then he just leaves it and moves on. And you're like, wait, 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 tell me about that. But he doesn't tell you about that. He just drops his name. Did David know what he was saying? Maybe. I don't know. I don't know what was in David's mind. Maybe he's thinking, well, I'm, you know, I'm king and I want to be kind of a, a go-between. So I don't know what David's thinking. But, but I think in reality, just like so many of the Old Testament writers, they're prophesying and they don't know they're prophesying. They have, no, they have no concept of what's going. This is, uh, I open at the close. I, I don't get it. Holy Spirit's leading me to write this, but I don't get what that means. And you have to get to the end to realize, oh, I get it. So that, that's his story, right? That's his story. Let's talk about his superiority, because this is where the writer spends most of his time. He's going to use all of chapter seven, basically, to show that the, the priesthood of Melchizedek is better than the Levites, and the reason why, understand, again, remember original context. You have a group of people who have said they believe in Christ, but because there's pressure and because it's easier, they're tempted to go back to what? To the law. 
And which means, guess what? I got to go back to the temple. I got to start killing animals again. I got to start making sacrifices again. I got to go to Levites. I got to go to these guys. I got to go to a high priest. And so he's encouraged him, no, 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 don't go back. So he's going to show the superiority of Christ and ultimately the Melchizedekian, if that's even a word, priesthood versus the Levites. So he's going to spend the whole chapter. We'll hit a high level. Here you go. Verse uh, four. See how great this man was to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of his spoils. Now, remember, who's Abraham to these guys? That's their, that's their dude. That's on the Mount Rushmore for Israel. You got, you got, you know, uh, David, you got Moses and the number one spot, the George Washington spot is Abraham. He is the father of the Jews. He is the first. He's the originator. He's the greatest of the great. He's the patriarch. And yet this writer says, see how great, not Abraham was, but the one who Abraham tithed to. See, the descendants of Levi received their priestly office, have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. That is from their brothers. Those, these are descended from Abraham. What he's saying is when you were a Levite, you had to live off of your brothers and sisters. They would, if you were a, if you were from the tribe of Naphtali, or you were from the tribe of Dan or Gad or whoever, Zebulun, you would give one-tenth of the stuff from your farm to the Levites so that they could serve you by serving the temple, synagogue, whatever, and they wouldn't have to go back to their home and, and work a job so that they could minister to you. That's the way it worked. You'd give a tithe and they'd live off it. He said, that's how it happened. Brothers would support their brothers so they could serve them. He said, but not this dude. This man does not have his from des- descent. He doesn't come from Abraham. He's not Hebrew. But yet, Abraham tithed to him. And this man was blessed by Abraham. I mean, Abraham was blessed by this man. It's not that Abraham blessed him. Melchizedek blessed Abraham. It is beyond dispute, he says, that the inferior, Abraham, is blessed by the superior. You're saying, this guy is greater than Abraham, right? He t- the lesser tithed to the greater. The greater blessed the lesser. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men. That's the Levites. But in the other case, by one who is, is testified that he lives. Melchizedek, his priesthood is forever. And so he receives tithes and he lives forever. One might even say that Levi himself, who received tithes, paid tithes through Abraham. And again, this is a very foreign argument to us because this is like, you know, patriarchal and stuff. But his argument is this. You got Abraham, then you got Isaac, and you got Jacob. Then you got all the 12 tribes, Levi. So Abraham is the great-grandfather of Levi. And he said, in some ways, since Abraham tithed to Melchizedek, since Levi is in his loins... Love that word. He's in his loins still. Then technically, he tithed to him too. And it's this, this kind of older idea, right? We, don't, we get it a little bit in our culture. When my dad comes to town and he's like, let's go to jalapenos. Let's go to jalapenos. Great. I don't bring my wallet. Two reasons. Number one, if my dad ever did say, hey, can you get this? I could say, no, I don't have my wallet. <laughs> but ultimately, because when my dad comes to town, he's the patriarch. Who pays? He pays. These are his grandchildren. He pays for them. Right? That's the way it works. One day, I'll be in that role, okay? When we go to his house for Thanksgiving, he doesn't say, you're the pastor, son, you pray. No, he prays. This is his house. This is his turkey. This is his TV. He prays, right? Because he's the patriarch. That's the idea. And what, what the argument here is, yes, Abraham's the patriarch, and who's greater than him? This guy. This guy's greater than Abraham and everyone who came from Abraham, even Levi, who came from him. Even though Levi gets the tithes, this guy got the tithes from the guy who tithes Levi, right? That's, that's his argument. He's greater. He is far superior, right? And then he goes on. If perfection came 
It was attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under that the people received the law. What further need would there forbid another priest to arise according to the order of Melchizedek? His argument is this. I had to fire the Levites. This is God. God had to fire the Levites because they didn't work. Aaron didn't work. If they worked, why, his argument is, why did David say, well, there's another priesthood coming 500 years after the law? If Aaron was doing his job and the Levites were doing their job and it was successful and this thing was working good, why did God need to say, well, I have another priest coming from the order of Melchizedek? Right? Because the, the second is greater than the, the first. Right? When there's a change of the priesthood, because there had to be, there's a change of law. Because there has to be. When there's a new sheriff in town, what happens? There's a new law, right? That's the way it works. He said, because there's a new change, because the old wasn't working, the old was done away with. And, and the requirement under the old, if you wanted to be a priest under the old way, what was the requirement? There was only one. You had to be a Levite. You had to have the birth certificate. In fact, if you couldn't prove that you were a Levite, you couldn't serve in the office of priest. Read the book of Ezra. This happens. A bunch of guys are like, hey, we're Levites. Prove it. We can't. Nope. You're out. So everything was the, where you came from. But he says this, the one whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe. Jesus didn't come from Levi. What tribe did Jesus come from? Judah. We need a new law because Jesus had to be the high priest, but he didn't qualify under the law because he wasn't from Levi. So we have to have a new high priest. We have to have a new priesthood. One who has never served at the altar for, from, from Judah. It is evident that the Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests, only kings. Right? Again, I know this is heady, but just follow his argument. This becomes even more evident when other priests arises and the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but on the power of an indestructible life. His argument is this. Levites were qualified by one way. Who's your daddy? That's it. Jesus, Melchizedek were qualified what? Not who's their daddy, but they're indestructible. Can't kill him. He lives forever. That's better than who's your daddy. Can't kill him or who's your daddy? I'm going with can't kill him. It lives forever. It's a better, it's a superior priesthood. On one hand, a former commitment is set aside because it's weakness and uselessness. The Levites, no offense, were useless. They're weakness. Why? The law made nothing perfect. You understand this, that the law, sacrifice, kill, sacrifice, blood, kill a bird, kill a lamb, kill a sheep, kill a cow, kill a lamb, kill a lamb, wave an offering, woohoo, right? Blood, 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 blood. It couldn't make anyone perfect. Never did. Never made anyone perfect, right? It never got you there. You couldn't get to God. One dude, once a year. We did this in Exodus, but for those who weren't here. The, the closest a person could get to God, God's presence was represented in where? The Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was before it got lost, before Indiana Jones found it. It was in that place. And the only way to get close to God was one dude, one time a year, on the Day of Atonement, he would go behind the veil and he would be scared spitless, y'all, because he's going into the presence of Almighty God. And if he messed up, guess what happened? He died. So they had to put a rope around his leg. So in case they hear thud, they'd be like, uh-oh, another one bites the dust. And so they had to pull him out. All right. And they drag him out because you didn't just enter into the presence of almighty, holy God just flippantly. So he would go into that dark place and he would bring the blood of this one goat that they had the scapegoat and they had the, the goat that they killed. And he put that, that blood on the mercy seat. And then he would get out of Dodge and be like, whew, don't have to do that again for 360 days right? Because it was a serious, serious thing. That was the closest anyone could get to God ever. 
until, until 33-ish AD, when the Lamb of God said, it is finished. And that veil was ripped from top to bottom and opened up. And now you, who were alienated, you Gentiles, and there's a couple of you that have a Jewish heritage, but the most of us are Gentiles, who you wouldn't even be able to get into the parking lot of this place. God says, come on in. Not because you are good, but because he is good. Not because you did anything, because Christ did everything. And that's why he says, we have a different law. We have a different hope. A better hope is introduced, one which we draw near to God. This Melchizedekian priesthood. And on top of that, he's just stacking up arguments. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. Again, the idea is this. How were you made a priest? Because you were in the right family. There was no, and there was no discussion in the little Levite family like, what do you want to do, Levi, when you grow up? I want to be a fireman. You're not going to be a fireman. You're going to kill animals and set things on fire. That's all you get to do for your entire life. Kill things and burn things. That's it. And you never get to sit down either because there's no seats in the temple, right? Have a nice day. You better get your steps in. That's what you're going to do. There was no, like, I pro- there's no Hippocratic oath. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. No, that's what you did. But with, with God, he says, my priesthood, this priesthood that I'm, I'm talking about here, it was made with an oath. And we'll see this at the end of chapter six. I'll read it at the end, but I'm going to kind of give you the highlight. See, when God speaks... You can take it to the bank because it's true because it's impossible for God to lie. But if God wants to like really emphasize that he's being serious here, he says, I make an oath. So he says, I swore by myself. I'm, I'm double dog daring you. I'm, I'm up in the ante here. Not only do I never lie, but I'm going to make an oath on top of it. Just so you know, I'm serious here that the Lord has sworn and he will not change his mind that you are a priest forever, whoever he's talking to. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Because God has said it, and then he has on top of it, promised it. This is better than that. It's superior. And he even adds more. He's, th- he's stacking on more. And the former priests, just so you know, they all died. Not their fault, but they died. They were many in number. Why? Because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. They could only serve, by the way, read Hebrews, from the age 25 to the age 50. They could start at 25, and then when they were 50, they were like, all right, here's a watch. Go home. You're retired because they would die and die and die and die and die. But this one over here, he holds his priesthood permanently. Why? Because he continues forever because he lives. And so because he lives, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near through him since he always lives to make intercession. He's superior. And on top of that, it was fitting that we should have such a high priest, one who is holy because we're not. One who is innocent, because we're not. One who is unstained, because we're not. One who is separated from sinners, because we're not. And one who is exalted above the heavens, because we're not. Why? Because he has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily. Every one of the Levites, Moses and Aaron included, they had to offer a sacrifice for themselves first. Why? Because Moses, on the way to temple, accidentally or on purpose, kicked the dog. I was like, oh man, I got to do that. Yelled at his wife, got mad, did whatever. They were sinners. And so they first offered a sacrifice for their own sin and then for everyone else. But this Melchizedekian priest, whoever he is, he doesn't have that need. 
He doesn't offer one for his own sins and those for the people since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. These priests had to constantly killing a bird, killing a cow, killing a lamb, killing a goat, killing a ram, killing a bird, killing a this. Constantly, constantly, constantly. Yet the blood of bulls and goats could not take away sin. But this one over here, he makes one offering himself and then he did it one time and then he sits down at the right hand of the Father because his work is done. So he's superior. The law appoints men in their weakness. They die. They sin. They need a sacrifice. They don't come with an oath. Blah, 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 blah. But the one over here, the Melchizedekian, the superior one, comes with an oath where he appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And again, his argument, if you get lost in the weeds, is that Melchizedekian priesthood, whatever it is, is greater than Levites, and it's all these reasons. And for the original audience, why, why, why do you want to go back to a dude in a funny hat that can't really do what you want him to do anyway? Right? He can't. He can't give you what you want. So why would you go back to him? That's his argument. That's his story. That's his superiority. So what's his significance? I mean, what, what's the point? Right? What is, why does he even write this? Um, great question. <laughs> great question. This is where I hope that I open at the close will kind of come in for you. Where you don't see it, you don't see it. Why? Genesis 14, Psalm 110, why, 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 why? Oh, I get it. Melchizedek is what theologians will call a type. It's a type. Some of you have heard that language before. Typology is a study uh, of the scriptures. And what a type is, is, is very simply is this. It's a person or event that foreshadows Ultimately, the anti-type, that which it represents. It points you to something else. It's a shadow of, of the fullness, right? It's, a, it's, a, it's supposed to picture and get you to understand, oh, I get it now, right? And so I open it to close. It's just a reminder to Harry, you're going to die, Harry, All right, You're going to die at the end. And if I just spoiled it, yes, Harry dies. He dies. He comes back, but he dies. And then he kills the bad guy and everyone's happy, right? But... Uh, but that, it's just, you don't know that in the point. I open the clothes, what does that even mean? Oh, you gotta get the stone out so you come back to life, right? Whatever, you don't get it. He gets it at the end when he's there. What, what Melchizedek does is you don't understand at the time, but then you look back 2,000 years ago and you see Messiah, Jesus, on a cross out of a grave. You're like, oh, I get what God was doing. I get you now, because we have the whole story. He's pointing us, like so many things in the Old Testament, to the reality of who Christ is and what he would do. And there's all sorts of types in the Old Testament. I don't have time to unpack them all. Probably the first type in the Old Testament is Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. It's not just a fun tale about a boat and some rain. Judgment is coming. God has proclaimed it. There is only one way to escape. Get inside the boat. How do you get in the boat? One door to one boat. Who closes the door? God closes the door right? It's the same. It's a picture of what God will do one day. Judgment is coming. There is only one way to escape judgment. How? Get in the boat. Get in Christ. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father by way. This is supposed to get you there. It's a picture of that, right? Isaac, this miracle baby. Remember Isaac? Abraham was promised for 25 years that they would have a kid and he doesn't have a kid until he's 100 years old. His wife is 90. This miracle baby. Who else was a miracle baby in the scripture? Um, Jesus. And then when he gets to be about you know, 18 years old, God says, I want you to kill the miracle baby, Abraham. 
And without question, Abraham, Abraham says, okay, why? Because he knows that God has to keep his promise and somehow he's going to do something. So he takes him up on that mountain. He lays him down. Isaac lays down willingly. Who else lays down willingly? Right? And Abraham, the father, is about to plunge a knife into his son and God stops his arm and says, now I know that you fear me. But it's supposed to picture what would happen 2,000 years later when God the Father would plunge the sword, except he wouldn't stop it, and he would crush his own son, right? It was a picture. It was a type. Joseph. We looked at Joseph in the book of Genesis. Joseph rejected by his brothers. Who was rejected by his brothers? Went down to Egypt. Who went down to Egypt? Jesus went down to Egypt. Who was... Who was imprisoned and rejected, but then was exalted to the second most highest place in Egypt. Who was, Jesus was rejected, but then he's exalted to the second highest place so that he could save his brothers, Israel, and the Gentiles, Egypt, who, who was rejected, but now has been exalted at the right hand of the Father so he could save Israel and his brothers and the Gentiles, the Lord Jesus. It's supposed to get you there. The Passover lamb, we've covered the Passover lamb how many times, right? All those things. Jonah, the snake on a pole, a priest about it two Easter's ago, right? Where just as the serpent was lifted up in the wilderness, how are people saved from the poison of sin that's running through their veins? They look to the serpent and live. Jesus says, just like the serpent was lifted up, so the son of man must be lifted up so that you would say, oh, I get it. I get it now. I open it to close that Jesus, that, that Melchizedek is supposed to get you to Jesus. It's supposed to get you there. That you would see this is, this is what the, the Bible's been about all the time, even though it was kind of hidden, I mean, Christ says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures because you think in them that you have life. These things talk about me. Right? Think, just think. This will use our thinking brains for a minute. My king is righteousness. Who is the king of righteousness? Jesus is the king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem, the king of peace. Who's the prince of peace? Jesus is the prince of peace. Who's the true king of Jerusalem who will rule and reign one day in the new Jerusalem and the new heavens and the new earth? Christ is the king of Jerusalem, right? Who is the priest that goes before God most high and represents us to God and God to us? Who is the one who does that? Christ is the one who does that. Who is the one who is truly greater than Abraham? Doesn't Jesus tell the Pharisees, um, before Abraham was, I am? And they want to what? They want to kill him because he says it. Because he's claiming to be greater than Abraham. Why? Because he is greater than Abraham. Just like Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. Who's the one who blesses Abraham? Melchizedek. Who's the one who blesses us? God, through his son and by his spirit. Abraham even tithes his first and his best to who? To Melchizedek. What do we do as followers of Jesus? We tithe our first and our best to our God, Right? Because that's what we're commanded to do, right? Melchizedek doesn't have a beginning and an end because he has no genealogy. And he has an eternal priesthood. Who is the true alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end? Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, even if you go read Genesis 14, we're going to do this in a few minutes, but Abraham is brought by Melchizedek. You know what he brings him? He brings him bread and wine. What does the Lord Jesus do for us? This is my body. This is my blood. The whole thing is supposed to get you to Jesus, the Messiah, to see him as your high priest, him to be your hope. And again, I get that none of us are running back to the Levites 
the closest to a Levite you're getting is a pair of Levi jeans. That's it. So I get it. It's not the same. But I do think our temptation, whether we admit it or not, we, we may not run back to the Levitical law, but we run back to morality real well. We do it all the time. I don't drink. I don't chew. I don't go with girls that do. And so I'm righteous. I prayed this week for my enemies, and I prayed before my meals, and I did five out of seven quiet times. I'm, I'm in a pretty good place. And we are confident in our morality and our goodness and our kindness and our niceness. And we wouldn't say it, but we think we're better than we are because of that. And we're not. There's a guy this morning at, on the corner of our, our building at 7 a.m. He got arrested. He's holding a sign up. He got arrested because he went into his drawers. Um, but he's holding a sign up that basically said, Jesus thinks y'all are scumbags or something like that. We got the sign up front. You can go see it. But, and, uh, and he's in his drawers holding it. I'm thinking, you know, you got up here earlier than our 8 o'clock people. You're good for you. I mean, you know, but, but he, he's right. We are scumbags. We are. That's why we're here. And, and Jesus takes scumbags and he makes us clean. That's what he does, right? And so, so what do we do with a passage like this? Let me give you three thoughts and then we'll, we'll worship. And maybe one of these will land with you, maybe not. Um, again, this is a heady passage, I get it. It's very informational heavy, but, I, but, but there's a reason why the, the scripture teaches us things like this. And so let me encourage you in three years. Number one, passages like this, I think we should be confident and amazed at God because of them. Because nobody could create this on their own. I couldn't invent this stuff. No, no writer could. That, that 2,000 years before Christ, 500 years before the law, that there would be this guy that would show up, and this would be a picture of the Messiah. This is, again, pre-law. And there would be Levites and all these things and books written about the Levites. You got Deuteronomy, you got Le- Leviticus, you got all these books that are showing what the Levitical priesthood would look like. And really, you would, might think that was plan A. Plan A was never the Levites. Plan A has been Jesus from eternity past. Because according to the foreknowledge of God, he in, in eternity past, before he created angels, before he created us, before all that, it was determined that Jesus would have to come and redeem his creation. That happened before everything. That's always been plan A. And he's been dripping that language throughout all the scriptures so that people, when he finally showed up, be like, oh, I get it. That the, that the heel of that his heel would be struck, but he would crush the head of the serpent, that Abraham truly would be the father of many nations, and that in Abraham, all the nations would be blessed, and that through the lion of Judah, the tribe of Judah, there would be a king, and that one would come, and he would ride on a donkey, he would be born in Bethlehem, he would be rejected, but by his wounds, you would be healed. All these things were pointing you to him, and you couldn't, you couldn't invent it on your own. It is the beauty of Scripture. And the more you dig into the scripture, the more you read and get into the treasure of what it is, the more you see the beauty of what God has been doing from eternity past. And, and, and I tell you that because the world is attacking this book like never before. And Christians are buying it hook, line, and sinker. Well, maybe not, and maybe not. And I want to affirm to you the truth of God's word that it is impossible for God to lie. And so if he has written it down for us, it is true, even if Everybody out there is saying it is not true. It is true. And God has proven himself time and time again. And you can be amazed at what he's doing and you can find confidence in his word, right? And so don't, don't waver. Again, remember the original audience. They're wavering. They're tempted to go back. 
Go forward, don't go back. Right? Be confident and amazed. Here's the second thing. I want to encourage you to access your access. That you and I have access to El Elyon, the Most High God. That you have access to Yahweh, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords doesn't say, the whole Old Testament, God is saying, stay away, stay away. Moses is telling the people, don't come up here. Don't stay, stay, no, it's not safe, it's not safe, it's not safe. Christ purchases us our salvation. He says, it is finished. He comes out of the grave. And now God says, safe, come to me. All who are weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. That you have a high priest who can sympathize with you. And he invites you when there's need for grace and strength to come. Doesn't mean we come flippantly, but you have access. And we, I think we're real good about, about approaching him when things are hard and when things are difficult, when I need something. And what I want us to get to a place is, no, no, don't take for granted the access to the living God that we all have. And it's not, oh, Bill has it because he's a pastor. No, no, it has nothing to do with Bill. The vilest offender who truly believes that moment from Jesus of pardon receives and has access thus to the King of kings and Lord of lords. It doesn't matter what your week has been. You have access. It doesn't matter if you had a great week or a bad week. He says, come. Come, draw near. I mean, this is what the writer of Hebrews says. He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him. Why? Since he always lives, that the Lord Jesus himself right now is interceding for you, knows where you're at, knows your struggles, knows your temptations, knows that some of you are like, what time is the football game today? Not even thinking about what Fowler's saying. He knows, and yet he still invites. He knows that you have gods that replace him all the time, little g gods, and he still invites. And what, I, what I've kind of been convicted about this week is I'm a doer. I like doing. I like feeling like I'm doing stuff. I think this is why we gravitate to morality. I, I like the, I, I did, I did, I did. I, I'm a Martha. I'm serving, I'm doing, I'm getting, I'm studying, I'm doing this. And, and who, who does Jesus say chose the better portion? Mary. Mary wasn't doing nothing. She was sitting. She's the one working and serving. We would have said, Martha's great. She's awesome. Mary is the one, Jesus says, she chose the better portion because she's just sitting in my presence. She's accessing her access. Right? And I want to encourage us, man, don't waste your access. Taste and see. The Lord is good. Is this another read your Bible sermon? It is. It is. Delight yourself in him and he will give you the desires of his heart. Right? And I want us to get there. I want to get like... Like Peter, we hammer Peter. Peter's always, oh, Peter opens his mouth. And he does. He opens his mouth. But he's tr- he speaks truth sometimes. When they're on the Mount of Transfiguration, it's Jesus and Elijah and Moses and then Peter, James, and all. And he should have shut up. I get it. But you know what? What he says is true. He says, Lord, it's good for us to be here. Let me make some tents and we'll just hang out. That's, you know why he wants to do that? Because it's good. Because he's accessing his access. And, and yeah, he should have shut up. But it's okay to be like, this is good. It's good. Right? And so I want us to be that way. And it's, oh, we delight ourselves, that we delight in our king, not just when things are bad and when things are good. Now, there is a time for things are bad. And that's the last point is trust your anchor. Trust your anchor. That this whole section the end of chapter six, I'll read it real quick, is meant to be an anchor for your soul. Again, he says in verse 13, 
And again, this, this is just what I said earlier. But God made a promise to Abraham since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus, Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all, to, in all their disputes, an oath is final. The idea is this. If you want to make, say, I'm, I promise I'm going to make this payment, you say, I swear on my mother's grave, or I swear on this, or, you know, whatever. And that ups the ante so that they know that you're going to do what he does, you said. Well, for God, he can't swear by anything like, oh, I swear by, well, I'm the highest and most glorious thing, so I'll swear by myself. When God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, his word and his promise, in which it is impossible for him to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf having become a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. His point is this. Christ is your high priest. That's your anchor, y'all. That is the anchor to your soul. And we live on the coast, so you know what an anchor is. You throw the anchor in, and what happens? The boat, it'll still move. There's a, it's, not, it's a myth that oh, the boat won't go anywhere. The boat goes somewhere sometimes, right, where the waves will come. It's not, it's, that, that rope gets taut, and the waves are up and down, but it holds. It'll only go so far, and then it's tethered there. And the reason why you need an anchor is because sometimes the waves are coming, y'all. Sometimes it's two-foot waves. It's no big deal. But other times, it's 12-foot waves. But whether it's two-foot or 12-foot, the anchor holds. And it may feel like it doesn't because you're like, well, I'm getting seasick. But the anchor still holds. And Jesus is the anchor that God makes an oath and says, my anchor holds. So here's the encouragement. You, wanna, you want, the storm is coming and the wind's coming and the rain is, and the, and the seas are raising. If you build your house on the sand, you will fall. But if you build your house on the rock, the storm will come and the wind will blow, but that house will stand because it was built on the rock. Where is the anchor of your soul? If it's in your career, that's, that's not a good place. If it's in your spouse, I'm sure she's nice. It's not a good place. In your kids' education. If it's in your sports teams, I mean, y'all barely beat Carolina. That's, uh, it, you are not three-peating. I don't care what happens, but y'all barely beat the Gamecocks. I'm sorry. Right? That's a bad anchor. Where's your anchor? That's the point. Is it in one who is not like the Levites because they failed, who came, who, accord, uh, the beauty of the scripture, that the scripture has been pointing to him all along, that he, he's the one who goes behind the veil for you, that you can trust in his word and trust in him, that he has given you access to God the Father, not because you are good, because he is good. He is the anchor. He's the anchor. And let me encourage you. The seas are going to rise. Where are you going to go? God has met your greatest need in the fact that he has forgiven your sins in Christ and given you access to him. Your greatest need is not to get healed. It's not a new job. It's not to get married. Your greatest need is the forgiveness of your sins, and that is met in Christ. And if that is met, everything else is gravy. Yes, the ways are going to come. And yes, we see in a mirror darkly right now, but one day face to face. Where are you going to go? Got to go to your anchor. In the words of the hymn writer, I'll close with this. The hymn writer wrote this, this verse based on this chapter. His oath, his covenant, his blood. 
supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and say. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. And we're going to remember that and we're going to celebrate the Lord's table. Melchizedek brings some wine and some bread and Jesus brings some wine and bread. Why? Because he wants us to remember the work that he accomplished for us on the cross. And so what we're going to do is we're going to partake and we're going to take a piece of bread that is uh, without leaven because leaven in the Old Testament pictures sin and Jesus was without sin and it's going to have holes in it because Christ was pierced and it's going to have some bruising on it because Christ was bruised for you, right? Because he had to be. And then we're going to take a cup which is the new covenant, Jesus says in my blood, because the old covenant didn't work. We'll see this in the next couple of weeks. The old covenant was broke. The old covenant could not take away sin. Had to be the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. One who was sinless and perfect and holy and separated from sinners and exalted among the heavens is what he said. And so these, these elements, this meal, picture the work and the body and the blood of Christ, which gives you access, which was foretold in the scripture and is the anchor to our soul. And so if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, man, we invite you to partake. The, the folks are gonna hand out the elements, just give you a few moments to, to pray, to thank God, to celebrate, to whatever needs to, to tell your wife you're sorry because there's been conflict and you don't wanna take without oneness, whatever. And then when you're ready in your time, you take in your seat there. Um, and then you can stand and, and we'll sing a couple songs. Again, if you're not a, a Christian this morning, just let the elements pass. Because these are, these are elements and reminders for those who have put their faith in this high priest. And if you haven't, it's, it's a, a meaningless uh, cracker and, and juice. We'd invite you instead to put your faith in the finished work of the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world and the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords who will one day rule and reign over the New Jerusalem and all the universe. So let me pray and then we'll partake. Father, thank you for the beauty of your word. I pray that, I know I can't in my own self ever do it justice, but I pray that your people grasp the depths and the riches of the knowledge of God, how unsearchable, unfathomable are your judgments and your ways. You are truly the immortal, invisible, only wise God. To you be glory and honor and praise and majesty forever and ever. Amen.